look at various texts therein. Um, and then we looked also at uh, just a little bit from Paul and also Matthew, showing that this is a thoroughly apostolic teaching. It comes from the apostolic scriptures that, uh, that, that you know, the Son of God is pre-existent, to use scarce terminology. We mentioned also in passing um, on page 23 the ancient concept of the heavenly birth and the earthly birth. Um, the heavenly birth being an eternal birth, a, a birth without beginning or end, a begottenness in a technical sense. And that is the, what is referred to as the heavenly birth. And then the earthly birth being born of the Virgin Mary, being flesh of our flesh and these twofold births. I had mentioned Augustine, that's where I had seen it. Um, and then the vicar had mentioned that he had seen it in Ignatius. And sure enough, I went tracing through and found it in Ignatius as well. So. Yeah, all the way back. Ignatius, by the way, is like um, a very, very early second century, um, late first century. So it goes all the way back. All right, and then we uh, left off on page 24, as I had mentioned. And here we are entertaining, uh, you know, it's a somewhat subtle point, but an, a very important point regarding the the personality of the, the divine nature and the lack of personality in the human nature or of the human nature. Now again, recall in, in English, the way we think of personality, we think of, you know, whether or not someone likes A's burgers or In-N-Out or whether someone prefers cloudy days or sunny days or something like this. Like These are the things of personality, whether somebody's introverted or extroverted likes to read or doesn't like to read. That's not what we're talking about here. Remember how we've been confessing from the very start these, these three foundational principles that Christ is true God, true man, and one person. Okay. What happens when you have these two natures, true God and true man, if you said that they're both persons, then how many persons do you end up with? two persons, but we've just said true God, true man, one person. So then the human nature does not have personhood, does not have personality, is not an autonomous being unto itself. The divine nature is, in fact, an autonomous being unto itself. It does have personhood, personality in this technical sense. And to assert that uh, the humanity of of Jesus has its own personhood, the divine nature, or excuse me, the human nature has its own personhood or personality. Like we just said, you're going to end up having two persons, but you're also going to have the pre-existent Son of God adopting this person, the human Jesus. And so you're going to have an adoptionism. You're going to have, and so we're going to see that. I won't go to get too far ahead of myself. We're going to see that in the pages to come. So that by way of review from where we, have, uh, where we have been. And maybe we'll just pick up with that first full paragraph on 24, not cover the old material, especially since we just reviewed it, but keep pressing on into the new material. Here Dr. Scare writes, In the incarnation, the Son of God assumed human flesh. But did he then assume a human personality? Or stated another way, did the Son of God join himself to an autonomous human person when he became man? Really, that's the, that's the foundational question. That's the clarifying question of what's meant by personality. 
Okay, did the Son of God join himself to an autonomous human person when he became man? No, of course. Scare continues, the scriptural and Lutheran response to the question posed has always been no. In the incarnation, the Son of God took on flesh, but not another personality. Therefore, the human nature of Christ is different from any other human nature. Now, it's different in these two ways. First, in a negative sense, by uh, anupostasia, and that's uh, anupostasia, having no personality of its own. And then in a positive sense, by anupostasia, anupostasia, subsisting entirely in the divine personality. Thus, in the Incarnation, there was begun the personal union of the divine person of the Son of God with the human nature. And thus, there are in Christ Jesus two natures, divine and human, but only one person. That's the key, the Son of God. So put your, put your finger there so you don't lose your place in the middle of that lengthy paragraph. We'll, we'll get back there in just a moment. But another, another way to think about this, of course, is when we confess the Trinity, the Holy Trinity, we confess that it is one God in three persons. And then we talk about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, if the Son were two persons, then you would have to say one God in four persons. The Father, the pre-existent Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth, and the Holy Spirit. Obviously, no one confesses that. So that's yet another way of looking at this rather complex question in a more simple way. Um, One God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Son has the personhood. When he becomes incarnate, he does not not become incarnate in an autonomous human person. Rather, he takes on flesh, and the personhood belongs to him. So we still, so even through the incarnation, we still confess one God in three persons. Nothing changes. That's the point. All right. Hopefully you kept your finger right where uh, it was. We'll continue on in the midst of that, in the middle of that paragraph on page 24. Confessional Lutheranism has always taught that at the moment of our Lord's conception in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the human nature of Christ shared fully in the Trinitarian life of God. By virtue of the personal union of the divine Son of God with the person of Jesus Christ, the God-man, rules the world and fills all things. The human nature is not absent from this universal rule, but shares fully in it. Reformed Christology, sharing similar philosophical understandings to those of Nestorianism, has always considered God to be so transcendent and, quote-unquote, otherworldly, that a real and true communication of the attributes between the divine and human natures in Christ is impossible. For them, the eternal Logos could not participate in any true suffering and death. So you see what happens here. We remember Nestorius um, so emphasizes the two natures of Christ, the human nature and the divine nature, that you end up with two persons. The simple way to think of Nestorianism is the two two boards that are glued together. Do you have one board or two? (laughs) You still have two boards, even though they're glued together. 
Um, and, and so what you see here is his, his critique. Now, his main thrust is going to be to critique Reformed Christology in the next pages, but what you'll see is his secondary principles to teach us positively what the right confession is. And we don't, we don't hold to these philosophical principles, as he mentioned briefly already, that the Reformed do, such that by definition, an infinite God cannot become one with a finite human. And so there's, there's always this division. There's this way in which God cannot unite himself fully with man because man is not capable of receiving the fullness of God. But what you'll see, what you'll see, uh, particularly from the Reformed angle, is that this is philosophically driven. This is not theologically driven. There's no word of God as the basis of this reflection. There is a rational proposition as the basis of this reflection. All right, let's carry on a little further. Neo-Orthodox theology with typical Calvinistic emphasis on the transcendence of God resembles Nestorianism in which an actual incarnation is philosophically impossible. Barth attempted to resolve this problem by positing certain human characteristics to God prior to Christ's incarnation. The Reformed have taught that in the Incarnation, the human nature had a distinct personality. This traditional opinion is shared by more recent Reformed theologians who, like Burkhoff, view the human nature of Jesus as pre-existent. Okay, so Barth and Burkhoff, both Reformed guys, trying to deal with this problem, and you can see in the way they try to deal with this problem, they end up uh, Nestorianizing in their Christology. So uh, their attempt here is to try to view the human nature of Jesus as pre-existent. Scare continues, Pannenberg, a Lutheran theologian, repudiates what he calls the Logos theology and effectively separates God from the man, Jesus. Jesus' unity with God is derived from his being, God's revelation. Modern Christology, shaped as it is by the quest for the historical Jesus, sees the ego or personality of Christ as belonging to the man, Jesus. The quest for the historical Jesus which began to dominate Lutheran and Reformed theology in the 19th century, requires that Jesus have an independent human personality. According to this school of thought, the human personality in Jesus either grew, uh, either grew to understand itself as divine or was given such honor later in the Christian community. All right, both of which you've probably heard before. You've probably read books or heard pastors, theologians say something to the effect of, as Jesus grew, he came to know or understand that he was the Son of God. This is a 19th century idea. It goes no, back no further than that. And really, it's based on this very bad, very unfaithful Christology. So we can dismiss this idea that Jesus gradually comes to understand himself as the Messiah. Likewise, 
we can also reject this idea that Jesus was simply a man who was later given the honor of being divine by the Christian community. That's probably, that's probably this day, well, I don't know. I'm not going to say that. I will say that if you're doing your Christology by television show, this is probably what you're most likely to uh, run into, a kind of a history channel view of, was Jesus truly divine? Did the original Gospels get him right? What about the apoc- these apocryphal uh, texts that are uh, apocryphal texts? Excuse me, that are um, outside of the canon. Did they not get Jesus? You know, was it the later Christian community that asserted that Jesus was God? Uh, these kinds of things. Yeah. So. Again, what we want to do is recognize that these ways of thinking about Jesus, these ways of thinking about his divinity, uh, are wrong-headed and come from recent innovations in Christology based on this faulty premise that, the per- that, that Christ is, is not one person. Okay, true God, true man, but not one person, thus we get this nonsense. So against that, we want to go back to the foundation and confess true God, true man, one person. We don't need this nonsense. All right, let's uh, pick up where we left off. In reality, this quest, referring to the quest for uh, the historical Jesus, in reality, this quest is similar to the ancient heresy of adoptionism, which, like Nestorianism, held that the two natures in Christ were separate. According to the view of adoptionism, the human nature of Christ was a human being who had been adopted by God to carry out the functions of the promised Messiah. See how he is not God, but he's been adopted by God? See how he's only carrying out the functions of God, but is not God? Yeah. Really subtle way of confessing that Jesus Christ is not God. And here you can see the satanic imprint, can't you? Yeah. So this is adoptionism. You know, you picture, picture like, I mean, for this, for your thought experiment, you can picture you or anyone else, just a human being, who is suddenly adopted by God and, and you become the Messiah. I mean, that's clearly not what's being confessed anywhere in the scriptures of the church for, well, the Orthodox Church. Adoptionism, unfortunately, comes along fairly early, if I recall. Certain events marked Jesus as the one adopted to do God's work, including his baptism. Remember that, that he was, you know, that Jesus was just a a normal human being going about life. And then in his baptism, he's adopted by God, and now he's the Messiah. I mean, this is nonsense, of course. His baptism, transfiguration, resurrection, and session at the right hand of God. All right, so we're going to confess that he's one person. We're not going to fall into all these modern errors. We're going to recognize that these modern errors have at their root not confessing Jesus Christ as one person. Scare continues. Although the classic Reformed position flatly denied that there are two autonomous personalities in Christ, it understood the human nature to be so autonomous as to possess its own independent life and hence personality believing that each nature has its own set of attributes the reformed could not escape the conclusion that there were in fact two persons in Christ one divine and the other human 
the human nature was excluded from the divine and the divine from the human. Lutherans have continued to maintain that Reformed Christology, if consistently applied, results in a denial of the Incarnation. Traditional Reformed thinking understands heaven, earth, and hell in spatial terms. All right, so let's put our finger there. Um, this is where you get the idea in, in just common Reformed thinking that Jesus is um, as far away from, from earth as are the heavens, and that is, in their way of thinking, quite some distance, and that, that that's where Jesus is, particularly in his body, and so where is, where is Jesus in his body? Where is Jesus in his humanity? At the right hand of the Father in far distant heaven. But what about those texts that say, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the earth? Well, they say Jesus is here, but not in his body. So now you have Jesus disembodied here on earth and Jesus embodied there in heaven. You have two Jesuses, two persons. So... This is, um, obviously, this is a problem, it's, and it's part of the problem when you view heaven, and, uh, heaven, earth, and hell in spatial terms. I think it's said, I don't know if it's true, but I think it's said that the first uh, Russian astronaut that got blasted into space got up into space and said, well, I don't see any God up here. Maybe he was reformed. <laughs> because there's this idea, this spatial idea that... Um, Heaven is, you know, if you, if you went far enough on a rocket ship, you, you'd get to heaven. Um, it's, a, it's a very strange view. It's not the Lutheran view, as we'll see articulated here by Dr. Scare. So I'll save our, our conversation on that. Um, it's not to say, we're not saying that, that heaven, earth, and, and hell, we can't reckon those as, as places. We certainly can. It's just they're not, they're not places in the spatial terms we're accustomed to, you know. This, this idea that, that hell's at the center of the earth, and if you, if you accidentally dig too deep as a child, you might end up there. Um, or if you become an astronaut and blast into space, you might see some angels flying around up there. I mean, this is, uh, this is nonsense, of course. All right, so let's carry on. Incarnation for the Reformed involves a quite literal going from heaven down to earth because Lutherans have never conceived of heaven as a locally confined space, uh, and, and that's some technical language there, locally confined space. Again, like a very simple way to understand it is you can't fly a plane to it. You can't drive to it. We're not saying it's not a place. We're just saying it's not a locally confined place or space. Okay? So Lutherans have never conceived of heaven as a locally confined space, they have remained unencumbered with an understanding of reality which would, if consistently applied, make the incarnation of Christ impossible. Um, you know, and again, from this angle, you could see Christ who is omnipresent, Christ, the Son of God who is omnipresent, who is everywhere, could not become incarnate because then he would be somewhere, <laughs> right? And if he's somewhere, he's no longer everywhere. And since we know he's everywhere, he can't be that somewhere. Thus, the incarnation is rendered impossible. Yeah, so that's the problem with uh, in these philosophical premise, uh, premises. I mean, Okay, so reformed philosophical presuppositions are 
quite consistently applied in their denial of a true bodily presence of Christ in the elements of the Lord's Supper. Okay, so again, whether you view it as a Lord's Supper problem that ends up a Christology problem or a Christology problem that ends up as a Lord's Supper problem, either way you look at it, it's kind of the chicken and the egg. It doesn't much matter. It's just that this, this rationale that they use in their Christology is the same rationale they use for why Christ isn't present in the his body and blood aren't given and shed for us to eat and drink by mouth in the supper. Okay. Scare continues. This is a view of the Reformed, which is a byproduct of their Christological presuppositions. Um, here dropping down to uh, the footnote, in ref this is Alert, um, a Lutheran. In refutation of the Lutheran doctrine of Holy Communion, not only Zwingli, but also the consensus Tigorinus, the inspired by Calvin, declares with regard to the body of Christ that it has to be as far away from us as heaven is from earth. So I've, I've had the opportunity to dialogue with quite a few Calvinists on this point, and without fail, they tell me that Calvin's doctrine of the Lord's Supper is substantially different than Zwingli's doctrine to which I learned very early in my ministry to grab a hold of a copy of this document and show it to them and say, look, this is where Calvin himself is in perfect agreement with Zwingli, that the body and blood of Christ are as far away from the wine and bread as heaven is from earth. And again, in the Reformed conception, that's a long ways away. All right, so... Again, we simply lump the Reformed and the Zwinglians together in denying the, that the body and blood of Christ are received by mouth, and there's, that's absolutely accurate. If you're a Reformed person listening online and you don't hold to that, you hold that the body and blood of Christ are actually received by mouth, then surprise, you're a Lutheran. <laughs> you, should, you should give me a call. Um, I'll, I'll find the, help you find the next nearest LCMS church. All right. Let's continue with Scare, right after that footnote. Lutherans have never had to adjust their Christology to harmonize with the latest cosmological theories. Uh-oh, there's a lot more to space than we thought. Heaven you know, must, must be really far away. No sooner than Jesus got there, he probably had to start his return in order to get here for his uh, second coming. He's got a long ways to go. Well... John A.T. Robinson proposed just such a synthesis of theology and physics, which served as the basis for his understanding of God as being so imminent that he is virtually imprisoned in human existence, a concept borrowed from Paul Tillich. Okay, well, these are more liberal types of theologians. Let's just press on to see the point. The Reformed are encumbered with an overly structured view of the universe and their classic axiom, that the finite is incapable of the infinite. Finitum non est capax infinity. This means that by philosophical definition, the human nature of Christ cannot embrace the divine nature. The principle of the incapability of the finite to be joined to or associate with the infinite attacks the heart of Christianity as a religion of God's salvific revelation and easily unravels any meaningful Christology. 
if the finite is intrinsically incapable of entering into union with the infinite, then the finite has the possibility of being an obstacle to the infinite, and thereby at this one point superior to it. Here's a critique of the principle as such, that if, if the so, so you have to think about this for just a minute. All right, if the finite is incapable of the infinite, then by definition the infinite is incapable of the finite. What can God not do, according to the Reformed? He could not become man, because man's finite, you see? And so and th that's what Dr. Scare means at this point, that in the, at, at this one point, the humanity then is stronger than the divinity. And by extension, we would be too. Right? God is not capable of me. <laughs> I mean, that's, of course, that's not what the Reformed intend to do, but that is the consequence of this philosophical axiom. So, what's the point? Get rid of the philosophical axiom and rejoin the church Catholic, small c Catholic, in confessing the apostolic Christ and the oneness of his person. All right. Scare continues taken to an extreme, the impossibility of a relationship between the finite and the infinite results in pure agnosticism, since by any relationship, since any relationship between God and his creation becomes impossible. Now, by the way, there are plenty of modern Lutheran theologians who fall into this too. Uh, this idea that uh, you, you usually hear it in terms of re the context of revelation and exegesis, this kind of discussion, where it is said that God, because he is infinite and so high above us, cannot communicate to us, or binds himself to human words, but those words aren't the thing themselves. Those words are just analogies of the thing, because the thing itself cannot be contained by us. Okay. Um, maybe... maybe <laughs> One of the axioms that lends itself to this is all theology is analogy. And it's the same principle being employed, is that we cannot comprehend the thing itself, we cannot comprehend the Word of God, we cannot comprehend God. These things are all together. And so God must speak to us in analogy we must only understand by analogy. Thus, all theology is analogy. I mean, purely reformed and completely erroneous. Because once again, you're telling God what? That there's something he cannot do. God, you who made me cannot communicate to me. <laughs> well, that's not the intent, of course, but that's where it lands. So we have to get rid of all this philosophical rubbish. Um, and we have to stop seeing such a sharp and hard distinction between uh, the creator and the creature. Of course there's a distinction there. Who on earth denies that except for pagans? But... The idea that God could become man, would become man, that this isn't alien to God in any way, shape, or form, this is, this is the biblical principle that we need to re-grasp, re-grab a hold of, that, that the incarnation is not alien to God. It's not like God goes, oh shoot, my creature's messed up. I guess since the only way I can save them is to become one of them, then I'll have to become one of them, but it's not really going to work. It's going to be uncomfortable, and I'm not going to like it. And then no sooner than I become one of them, I'm going to accomplish the work and then hide out at the right hand of some far distant heaven because, you know, it's not really who I am or what I'm like. We've got to get rid of that because as we see all throughout the New Testament, to see 
God in human flesh, to see the Son of God incarnate in Christ Jesus, is to see the Father. Right? And there's nothing alien about this. As, as I no doubt Scare will get to and point out, there's nothing even humiliating, there's nothing even humbling when we speak most accurately about God becoming man. Just as there's nothing humiliating or humbling in the fact that God, you know, wraps himself in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, or in the burning bush, or as the angel of the Lord, or as the commander of the Lord's armies. There's nothing humiliating in that. Um, There's nothing that lessens who God is in these things. So too, there's nothing that lessens who God is when he becomes man. It's not as if the Son of God, when he becomes man, suddenly gets his hands tied behind his back, you know. It's like, I'm totally free. I'm the Son of God. I can do whatever I want, but now I've become man. I can't do anything here. I'm limited to this humanity. No, not at all, not in the least. When he becomes man, he doesn't cease to be anything he was before, right? He, he becomes, uh, he simply is God who then um, assumes the human flesh, assumes the human nature, and thus becomes incarnate. All right, so um, this is a much more biblical, much more faithful way to look at it. And, and now we see where, you know, this scares critique that if you really press this, the finite is not capable of the infinite. If you really press it, then you're going to destroy not only the incarnation, you're going to destroy revelation. And you're going to land, because God, who is infinite, cannot speak to the finite. The, the finite cannot comprehend the infinite in his revelation. And, and so then that leads to agnosticism, because you're going to just say, I don't know if I've got it or not. I, I don't, who knows if I've grasped the analogy, right? So that's scarce point. Okay, let's carry on. Human beings would never be able to know anything about God at all. Fortunately, the Reformed are inconsistent and do not draw this conclusion and thereby deny all knowledge of God. But it is the logical conclusion of their philosophical principles They firmly hold to natural knowledge and man's ability to understand the scriptures. But the spirit has to be added outside of the scriptures for saving knowledge. In the question of salvation, they apply this principle when they teach that the certainty of salvation does not come through the preached or written word, but through a direct indwelling of the Holy Spirit. When Calvin applied this principle to the Incarnation, he quite logically concluded that the deity was so enormous that it cannot be embraced by the humanity of Jesus. That's Calvin. Lutherans dubbed this teaching the Extra Calvinisticum. And we'll follow the footnote down, footnote 13, and see a quotation from Calvin's own Institutes. That's his magnum opus. There he writes, Even if the Word, capital W, even if the Word in His immeasurable essence united with the nature of man into one person, we do not imagine that He was confined therein. All right, well, where do you start? Even if (laughs) the Word in His immeasurable essence uh, was united with the nature of man, Okay, well, there's, there's problem number one, uh, and, and was united into one person. Then he says, we do not imagine that he would be confined therein. 
So once again, in Calvinism, you sort of got this really strange idea. And truth be told, it's just part of our fallen human nature. So maybe you've had this idea too. As if you sort of picture the Son of God as like everywhere. Maybe even you picture him in his mind as just being above. And then sort of like part of him reaching down, almost like a hand into a glove and grabbing a hold of Jesus. And, and, there, and there he is in Jesus, and that's the incarnation. Well, God is, well, the Son is both in Jesus and outside of Jesus, both Jesus and more than Jesus. I mean, this is, this is a very wrong way of thinking about it, a very wrong way of looking at it. Um, but as we've just heard Calvin say, that's about how he pictures it. Okay. So... <clears throat> There's, there's a just critique of Calvin from his own words uh, in his magnum opus, The Institutes, and I think we've got one more quotation from the Institutes coming up. Let's just get Dr. Scare's next line. Had Calvin been even more consistent, he would have denied the incarnation entirely. We'll drop down to footnote 14. Here, Calvin, um, yeah, we have some commentary first where Scare writes, he, Calvin, comes very close to doing so in the way he describes the relation of the divine and human nature. So this is this next quote from Calvin, very close to denying the incarnation. Calvin, surely God does not have blood. Oh. In Acts, it's the blood of God that purchases the church. Surely God does not have blood does not suffer. Whoa! So Jesus stopped being God when he was on the cross, huh? Eh, we got a problem. So God does not have blood, Calvin writes, does not suffer, cannot be touched, uh, cannot be touched with human hands. But since Christ, who was true God and also true man, was crucified and shed his blood for us, the things that he carried out in his human nature are transferred improperly, although not without reason to his divinity. I, in theological parlance, you cannot possibly get closer to denying the incarnation while still weakly asserting it as this. I mean, this is... This is masterful subterfuge and theological gymnastics. If that's your kind of thing, then you should probably uh, crochet this quote on a pillow. All right, let's pick back up with Scare right after that uh, footnote 14 in the main text. The same principle is at work in the Christology of Karl Barth. The word does not become flesh, but only assumes flesh. All right, well, there's nothing wrong with talking about the word assuming flesh. That's fine language in and of itself. But look what's happening here. The word does not become flesh, but only assumes flesh. Now we've made a distinction. In fact, we're defining assumes precisely in a way it's not commonly used. Okay, so you just have to know the sleight of hand that is so apparent in these, uh, these Christological debates. Everybody wants to use the same language. They just change it, tweak it, without telling you that they've done that. So everybody's confessing the same word, and meanwhile, they've changed the meaning. All right, let's carry on. Barth's distinction between, quote-unquote, becoming and, quote-unquote, assuming is very important. The humanity of Jesus mirrors the divine. 
Gustav Wingren offers this assessment of Barth. We find a line of thought in Barth which strongly emphasizes that the gulf between the divine and human remains unbridged even in the incarnation. I mean, just take that in for a moment. The gulf between the divine and human remains unbridged even in the incarnation. Thus, the idea was presented especially in uh, Die Kirchliche Dogmatik, Volume uh, 3-2, that the humanity mirrors the divine in Jesus Christ. The idea of a mirror or a reflection occurs frequently in Barth's writings. Quick pause. Is a reflection the same thing? And that would be to look into the mirror and assume that the person on the other side is actually a person. No, it's not the same thing. Okay, so the idea of a mirror or a reflection occurs frequently. So Jesus is just a reflection of God. Does that mean he is God? No. Or he reflects God? No, then he's not. Then he's at, he's at best just, well, he's a reflection, which is nothing, or he's a mirror, which again, either way you put it is less than being God, yeah. Okay, and in addition, a reflection of the relatively higher sphere in the lower. All right, well, this is all nonsense. I mean, so basically, basically in the same way that you are not a mirror, God is not Jesus, right? All right, Scare continues. In Lutheran theology, God is not remote, but is rather so close to man that the incarnation is understood as a real expression of what God is like. This is actually a profound point, far more profound than, than really it is even in context here. This is a statement you could probably quote, on a, quote in crochet on a pillow. Um, it, because here's, here's the principal point, that the incarnation is an expression of what God is actually like. How often do we get this idea, and this is a very wrong-headed idea, that the incarnation is a plan B or is not what God is like or is God doing something alien to who he is. That becoming a man is a weird thing for God or an unusual thing for God. These thoughts are, are very common as we simply reflect on this, but we have to flush these things out and realize that, that in the incarnation we see uh, not only God becoming man, but we see an expression of who God is. Is like what God is like, who He and His nature is like. He He wants to be God with us. Um, you see this in the garden when He walks with man and talks with man and dwells with man. Um, you see this, as, so you see it at the beginning of the Bible. You see it at the coming of Christ, where where Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Okay, and you see this at the very end of the Bible, where in Revelation, the dwelling place of God is with man. This is the beauty of the new heavens and the new earth. It's, I think sometimes we, again, rather childishly think of the new heavens and the new earth as, some, if we think of it at all, as, as some sort of like, okay, picture the world and then picture God at least as far removed as we perceive him to be now, maybe even more so, because he just sets everything right and then sort of disappears into the sky again. No, no. I mean, first of all, that's deism. That's not even what it's like right now. 
Uh, right now, he is with us and intimately connected with us and incarnate as Jesus Christ among us. Um, at, the, at the end of the world, at the new heavens and the new earth, at the culmination of all things, the dwelling place of God is with man. So that everywhere you go, whatever you do, whatever you see, whatever you experience, you see the face of God. You behold the face of God. It's the beatific vision. He desires to be with us and with us in precisely this intimate, close way. And of course, we have a profound foretaste of this, don't we? In the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, whom we receive in holy baptism. When the Holy Spirit of God, one of the three divine persons, comes to dwell in us. And as he dwells in us, so the Father and Son also come and make their home in us and with us as well. Jesus plainly teaches this in John's Gospel, for example. So this idea that the incarnation, like that God can't quite become man, and to be God is to not ever be man, to be God is not ever to be creature, or to be so closely united with creatures, this reformed principle of the finite not being capable of the infinite, um, is completely contrary to the whole of scriptures and to the very nature and essence of who God is. He is precisely a God who is with us incarnate in Christ, indwelling us. The dwelling place of, of God is with man for all eternity. Okay, so I think we've gotten the point. Scare continues. It must be asserted that in a negative sense, sin was the cause of the incarnation. Okay, that's fair. Uh, in a negative sense, like if you, look, if you look at it just logically or theologically, the wages of sin is death in order for uh, Christ, to save us from death, he's got to come and bear sin and take that away. Thus he becomes man. Okay, fine. But yet, Scare continues, the incarnation is not foreign to God, as if he were doing something unnatural. Before the fall, God conversed with man. In Lutheran theology, it is sin which separated man from God. But in Reformed theology, even before sin came into the world, there existed a natural chasm between the Creator and creation. All right, this is a, this is a key thing. Maybe you've even thought this way because it's a confounding variable in some theological reflections you might wander into. Um, you've, you know, you've got this distance between God and man on account of sin, but then you've also got this distance between God and man on account of Him being God and us being creatures. Um, but how actual, how real is that distant be distance between God and man, between God and creatures, in fact? And when you look at the biblical data, it's not a factor. It's not in fact, right? So what remains then is the distance between the creator and creature only on the basis of sin. As sin is removed, that distance is removed. Again, the dwelling place of God is with man. You know, again, it's not as though we ever become God. That's true. And yet, we become as close to God as you can possibly become without being Him. <laughs> that's, really the, that's really what is held out for us. That's our inheritance. That's why, by the way, it's absolutely and profoundly silly to kind of wish you were an angel or wish you weren't a human being or wish you were something other than you are. It is precisely in our smallness that our Heavenly Father loves us. It is precisely in our smallness that, that our Heavenly Father embraces us and holds us to Himself and loves us so dearly and, 
has us participate so closely in, in him and his love and who he is for all eternity. So there's a blessedness in this. Furthermore, there's this sort of illusion we have, I think, on the basis primarily of our ego, the sort of relativism um, where we, we have a tendency to see others who are greater than us in stature or power or wisdom or morality or something like this and, and bemoan our lesser and weaker extent and degree and, and maybe become uh, uncomfortable um, at our inferiority or some idea that in heaven they'll receive more of God than we'll receive, which of course is foolish. We're all cups and our cups all runneth over in the first place. But in the second place, as, as great as others may seem relative to ourselves, consider it rather from the perspective of God, who is entirely infinite. And so anything, no matter how, any, any being, no matter how great they might be relative to us, is relative to him not one bit greater, because he indeed is infinite. You see? So in that sense, we are all completely his children. We are all completely fulfilled by him. Our cups all entirely run over. So we ought not get so hung up on, well, he got a bigger cup than me. He's got more wisdom or morality. or You know, you see what I'm saying? Um, this just simply has no place in the heavenly sphere. In the heavenly sphere, we are all equally loved, even though we are not all equal in gifts you know, or, or same in gifts. Okay. Well, that's a digression, but I think a really important one, um, just simply that we reflect on uh, the nature of who God is, and uh, we don't hold out this false distinction between um, creator and creation, such that the incarnation becomes some kind of alien thing to God. No, when we've made that step, we're going in a reformed way, not a biblical way. All right, Scare continues, very bottom of 27, up to the top of 28. For the Reformed, Christ is not only the intercessor before God for sinful man, but also the mediator between God as creator and man as creature. The Reformed principle of the impossibility of the involvement of the finite and the infinite with each other is not an inconsequential philosophical principle but one which gives meaning to the totality of their theology. Thus, this principle, beginning with Christology, distorts all the articles of the Christian faith. For Calvin, the gap between God and man is bridged only in an incomplete way by the Incarnation and not at all by the sacraments. In Reformed theology, the immediate internal working of the Holy Spirit on the heart of man bridges the gap between God and man. All right, so there you can see everything distorted. The Holy Spirit, apart from the means of the Holy Spirit, um, distorted in every article, as Scare rightly says. All right, new paragraph. The Reformed did not apply the principle of the finite's incapability of grasping the infinite to their Christology and sacramentology when they asserted that the human nature of Christ was capable of no more than any other human being is capable of, and therefore the bread of the sacrament remains only bread and, wine, uh, only bread and the wine only wine. Okay, so again, the idea is... You know, because you have this finite creaturely element, namely the bread and the wine, how could it ever become the body and blood of Christ? 
which are these divine things. They can't be. So again, it's precluded on that level also. That's scarce point. All right, um, down, dropping down on uh, footnote 17. This from Calvin's Institutes. So again, right from the horse's mouth, so to speak. For as we do not doubt, Calvin writes, that Christ's body is limited by the general characteristics common to all human bodies. By the way, do you remember in John chapter 20, after Jesus has been crucified and the disciples are are in the upper room behind the locked doors for fear of the Jews, and Jesus appears in their midst? Okay, Calvin says, For as we do not doubt that Christ's body is limited by the general, general characteristics common to all human bodies. Do you know how Calvin says he gets in that room? By climbing up through a window. <laughs> I mean, could you just picture it? They're all there hiding out for fear of the Jews. And there's like, Jesus is skulking about outside, <laughs> carefully opening the window. I mean, no doubt they secured the window. What's he doing? Picking the window lock, you know, rattling it. And then he slips in. What's he do? Like an army roll and then appears in the middle of them? Ha-ha, it is I. I mean, this is preposterous. But see, this is where this theology leads. If, if the... If, if Christ's body, I mean, what a horrible statement. Christ's body is limited by the general characteristics of all human bodies. God is limited by the fact that he's taken on a human body. Again, it's precisely that picture of the, in the incarnation, Christ becomes man and his hands are tied in that body and he no longer can do what he wants to do. Oh, what a problem. And, and again, so the human nature is stronger than the divine nature. Well, you have it right from Calvin, this ludicrous kind of theology and the ludicrous things that it does to his reading of the text then where instead of just having Jesus simply appear in the midst of the disciples, even though they're in the locked room, precisely as John says, you've got Calvin having to inject this thing of Jesus skulking about and sneaking in a window. Well, you can see that I, I don't really have much love for, for Calvin um, and when people praise his great intelligence and all, it's like, yeah, well, great intelligence doesn't get you faithful theology. So, once more with Calvin. For as we do not doubt that Christ's body is limited by the general characteristics common to all human bodies and is contained in heaven, there you have it, where it was once for all received, until Christ returns in judgment, so in other words, the human nature of Christ is contained in heaven until Christ's judgment, okay, until he returns in judgment. Calvin continues, So we deem it utterly unlawful to draw it back under these corruptible elements. What's he talking about? The bread and the wine. Yeah. Or to imagine it to be present everywhere. Okay, that's a quotation from the Institutes, Scare says, and again, here's another quotation from the Institutes. Calvin writes, But we must establish such a presence of Christ in the supper as may neither fasten him to the element of bread <laughs> or enclose him in bread nor circumscribe him in any way, all which things it is clear detract from his heavenly glory. Finally, such as may not take from him his own uh, stature or parcel him out to many places at once, or invest him with boundless magnitude to be spread through heaven and earth. 
for these things are plainly in conflict with a nature truly human. I haven't looked at this, but I'm, I'm always very, because I, I, I don't really actually care. I guess I only care when I, when I think about it. But, but what on earth does Calvin do with the, uh, the multiplication of the fish and loaves? Those are finite things. Jesus distributes them for all intents and purposes infinitely, or at least as much as is necessary, such that everyone eats his fill, and then there are still 12 baskets left over. How on earth do you, do you get that without destroying the true nature of what it is to be a fish or a, or a loaf of bread? So Calvin's got all kinds of problems here with his uh, philosophy masquerading as theology. All right, well... Hopefully you enjoyed those quotations in exactly the way I enjoyed them. <laughs> All right. We've got just a couple minutes left. Hmm. Maybe let's go just a little bit further, but we're not going to get to a good stopping point, I see. So we left off at the footnote 17 in the midst of the text. The human nature of Christ in itself could and did engage in supernatural acts. But this was only possible by an act of divine grace. Again, this is, you know, this is Calvin's perspective, basically. A similar attitude is found in the Reformed concept of revelation. When the Word, here capital W, when the Word is not viewed as the vehicle of the Spirit, but as in need of a special immediate working of the Spirit to be effective in creating and sustaining faith. The bridge between heaven and earth is spanned by the Spirit and not by the human nature of Christ. Karl Barth did not deviate from, but only intensified his Calvinistic heritage in his doctrines of God, creation, revelation, and Christ. More recent dogmatic Christologies assume that there is no distinction between heaven and earth. The divine in Jesus is the appearance of what God is already doing in the world and will more completely manifest in the future of the world. The footnote here is enlightening. Pannenberg, in his book Jesus and Moltmann in Theology of Hope, exemplify this theory of the divine incarnation in the world. This is taking the Lutheran position to the extreme though Moltmann is reformed. Even though the Lutheran sees Christ as embodying the totality of the divine in himself, God still remains above time and space and involves himself in it as an act of his free will. All right, top of 29. Confessional Lutheran Christology operates with both earth and heaven, not in reformed spatial terms, but in the sense of the Nicene Creed, things visible and invisible. Okay, so that's it. That actually is not a bad stopping point. Um, So what do we do rather than view things spatially and philosophically? We view things creedally and apostolically. (laughs) So we simply confess that uh, the realms of heaven, for example, or hell, for example, that these aren't locales that you could drive a you know, a tractor to or a spaceship or whatever your vehicle is that you choose. Um, Rather, these are indeed realities and places, but we use the distinction visible and invisible. These are invisible places. Obviously, when you're there, they're not going to be invisible, but 
here they are. Okay, so we'll talk more about this creedal definition. We'll move forward um, you know, with, a, with a positive uh, Lutheran theology um, over and against this Reformed theology in the pages to come. For the sake of it, because uh, obviously we'll end, this, we'll end this chapter next week, those of you who like to read ahead, let's just plan um, 29 and go roughly, go roughly 10 pages to, to page 39. Um, that'll take us near to the end of, of chapter.